The stories you are about to hear belong around a campfire. These extraordinary tales are the ones that bring us together. This is where you'll hear them direct from the men and women who live to tell their tales. They're not professionals, but neither are we. I'm Matt. And I'm Brian. And you're listening to So There I Was. In this episode, you'll hear three stories from three adventurers of three different disciplines with three distinctly different outcomes. Our first story comes from our friend Matt Zalesnik. Matt became a skier at Western Pennsylvania's Hidden Valley Resort. Brian, you know the stats on um, Hidden Valley Resort? There's a 110 acres of skiable terrain. The average temperature is 24 degrees Fahrenheit. The vertical drop is 470 feet. Are you sure it's not 470 meters? Can you check that? <laughs> it's definitely 470 feet. 470 feet. Okay. And what's the elevation at like the, the highest point? Well, it's about 2,875 feet. Coming from Western Pennsylvania, Matt used to rip over at Hidden Valley. So naturally, his father took him on a trip to, you know, a bigger resort. One in Canada's British Columbia yep. called Blackcomb. <laughs> What the internet tell us about Blackcomb, <laughs> Brian? 5,133 vertical feet. Okay, this is 10 times the vertical. And the elevation at the top? 7,992. So pretty much 8,000 feet. All right, let's hear what Matt has to tell us. I think I think around 16, somebody convinced my parents that I should go out and start ski patrolling. At 16? At 16. So that's like the youngest age that you can get going with it. A neighbor who had seen me ski and suggested to my parents, hey, you should you should have your kid go out and try to ski, why, ski were, patrol. Why? Were you good with Band-Aids or something? Why would why would somebody say ski patrol to why, you? I was thinking the same thing. Like, Why not he should race? <laughs> All winter training, pass the ski patrol test. And my father, who had been out uh, at Whistler over the summertime um, on a business trip, says, we should go out and ski Whistler. The season's ending. It's April. Basically gets last-minute tickets, and me, my two sisters, my mother and father, all get on a plane, fly into Seattle, pile up into a caravan, and start driving north. I'm trying to come up with a good analogy here, but this is like the bad news bears. Like, <laughs> being, let's, let's play the Yankees. Is that kind of okay? Well, I think I think my dad felt a little bit bad about the whole thing because he knew that my sisters and mom and everybody were going to take it easy, and he probably knew that I wanted to test my to, shred, to yeah. test test myself on a, on a big hill. And so, uh, leading up to that, God only knows how my dad gets the email of the patrol director at Blacko, explains the situation on his, on his Commodore sixty four. <laughs> So he emails the guy and, and asks him, hey, my 16-year-old son's a patroller back in Pennsylvania. Can he come tag along with you guys one day? This guy's probably oh thinking, my. oh, shit. That is really fun. Already, I love this story. So they agree to do it. That, the first day, definitely don't remember much other than being surprised at how big the mountain was and how much snow there was. So two days go by. We get comfortable. I ski with my family. And then there's day three. The play date. It's like 5.30 in the morning, and I'm told to get to the ski area. I find the patrol director, and he immediately pawns me off on, on some guy. The sun's not even out yet. So this is end of season April. These guys are probably thinking about, they just want to get to the watering hole at the end of the night. And they're thinking, how did I get stuck with this 16-year-old kid <laughs> with bleached hair? I'm a little surprised surprised 
that they even agreed to do it. I mean, when your, boss tells, when your boss tells you, I'm like, <laughs> we're going to get a tag along. You've got a tag along. No, that the boss agreed <laughs> well, to. I think it's probably good PR. Is this something that's normal? I think there's a level of professional courtesy between ski patrols. All of a sudden, this guy takes off, and he is just rocketing. The next thing you know, I'm eating snow. <laughs> we got back on the lift, and we worked our way to the very top of the mountain. For the next four hours, I sat in the hut. Why? Because that's what you do as a professional ski patroller. Oh, you sit and you wait for a call to come to come ski so down to an accident. So you did one run, ate shit, and, sat, and, and then, then sat, went to the top. Went to the, top. <laughs> the guy who started off the day dropped me off at the top. And then gotcha. he was like, I got to go somewhere else. So he right. kind of pawned me off on the next guy. <laughs> so you're now with number two. <laughs> number two. It's getting about lunchtime. And the guy looks across me. Hey, you want to go ski? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to go ski. We take off. We ski ski down to lift. And he says, hey, I'm going to meet up with my buddy. And so we hop on another lift, head to another peak of the mountain. And all of a sudden, there's a guy just standing up there waiting for us at the top. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And next thing you know, we start heading backwards or across the ridge, I guess a good description of it. And I see ski area boundary. Off piece. And this guy, yeah, this guy, and his buddy patroller is like, he's like, we're going to go do some, uh, some skiing off the backside of the mountain. Okay. Are they allowed to do that? There was no ducking of a rope or anything. I, I think there was just a sign there that says Horseman Glacier ends here, and it was kind of the resort area boundary. Were you scared? No, not at this point. I didn't know anything at the time. <laughs> I'm a 16-year-old kid. I just want to get down the mountain, have, have a good day. And so ski off the backside, get to a hill, and next thing you know, click, click, and everybody's got their skis over their shoulders, and... We're walking up boot pack. So we start trudging up. This, this isn't easy hiking. You're carrying your skis. Each step is, you know, a good foot up. And you're stepping into somebody else's boot pack. And each boot pack's a good foot deep itself. You're like, we don't do this in Pennsylvania. This is like three of our hills that we're hiking up. And so we get to the top and uh, I'm looking around. And again, I'm completely beat now. I mean, th these guys are still trudging. And so they look and they, they say... All right, see that over there? And I'm looking down the slope thinking, okay, going to ski this section. Doesn't look too bad. And then these guys go, see that ridge over there? That's where we're going. We have no idea what the avalanche conditions were that day. Nobody had avalanche gear. Nobody even talked about avalanche. Yet there were avalanche dogs all over the mountain. But I think that was only because it was inbounds. They have to cover your ass. I don't right. know. Yeah, so we ended up uh, skiing all this. I have no clue that we're skiing against stuff that's super, super avi prone. I'm in the middle of avalanche country not knowing a thing about avalanches and the guy's like yeah he's like i've been thinking about skiing this all year long and i look and there's this nasty nasty looking sir so you're on you're here on the day that they're thinking about doing the shit and this is this guy's been eyeing it all like season long so we work our way over there and the uh the, the other guy who originally started the trip something's wrong with his binding he's just like I gotta get this fixed and he disappears the other guy starts hiking you know even further away down the cirque see the pine trees way 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 down there just keep going through the pine trees, and that'll get you back to the resort. So now I'm up here on the ridge line. How far away are these pine trees? I mean, you're looking down on them. They they, they look like matchbox cars from where I'm sitting. <laughs> I, I can say we were easily hiking for an hour, an hour and a half. This is starting to sound like a mountaineering expedition, where it's like we just start losing people. So now we get to the bottom of the of, of this wall, and, and next thing you know, I'm in the middle of these pine trees. And, you know, these things aren't spaced terribly far apart. We're talking 10, 15 feet. You're in the woods. Yeah. You're skiing the trees. Just like, just like avalanches, I don't know shit about tree wells. Yeah. So here I am. I'm just worried about if I keep skiing downhill. Do you know what a tree well is, Matt? 
with the void around the tree trunk. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's it's it can be deadly. I think those kill more people than avalanches. So it's all that does it all that means is you have to stay a good distance from each tree. Is that what it means? Yeah, that you don't want to fall. And then I mean, I guess the biggest problem is that you fall and then you tumble, and next thing you know, you're in the well. As you start to dig yourself out of it, the snow collapses in back towards you, and so. I think it's even worse for snowboarders because I think snowboarders can get flipped upside down. You can't actually get back upright to get out of your snow. So you had no idea how to ski through this area, but you were doing it. What happens if I ski the wrong direction? I end up too low and I miss the resort. At this point, it is now running through my mind. What if I don't get out of the trees? I have nobody around me. You are all by yourself. My dad's expecting me or my family's expecting me just to be back in the parking lot at four. And then you've got the guy who's just skied the Cirque and the other guy who's got a broken binding. They're the only two who actually know that I've come out this way. All right, let's stop Matt's story here. What's going to happen to Matt? Who knows? He's all by himself. He's 16 years old. Going to get dark soon. At, uh, you Tree know, wells, avalanches. 7,992 feet. Let's go on to the next one. Chrissy Ixik. Would I say it? That's right? perfect. I was 18. The high school girlfriends that I go to brunch with now in my 30s every once a month, they were the reasons why I started skydiving, which is probably the reason why I started kayaking and do all the crazy crap I do. Because they did it first? One of them wanted to do it for their 18th birthday. We were still in high school. It was May for one of their 18th birthday, and I was like, let's go skydiving. We were all like, okay, hell yeah. Five of us girls went out to Connellsville Airport. Little did we know. We were their very first students. We were one, two, three, four, and five. You mean they didn't? They didn't advertise that. They didn't they tell didn't, you. They didn't tell We've us never this. actually done this before. <laughs> they were very experienced skydivers, but they were brand new business. Like that was their opening weekend, and we were their very first skydiving student. That's a lot of pressure for them. They better not screw this up. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did not do so well, and I ended up landing downwind on the tarmac and blew out my knee. Wow, that's terrible. But that's not even the story you're going to tell oh, us. Oh, no, that but, was but not you the liked painful it, one. But you liked it enough to do it again. I think I was bummed about my landing and how I screwed it up. So October came around and I was like, hey, girlfriends, I want to go back and skydive for my birthday now. Hold on. Were you the only one who got hurt? I'm the only one that got hurt. So you were the only one who might consider not doing it again. <laughs> I mean, that was how I got into these things. So October came, we went back and... I wanted to do AFF, which is accelerated freefall, because I wanted to land my parachute correctly. And at this time... I need, you need to explain that. I have no idea what AFF is. Okay, means. so when you go to skydive for the first time, there's three different ways you can do it. Static line means when you jump from an airplane, the parachute is kind of automatically pulled as you leave the aircraft. You're not pulling the ripcord. You climb out, like the door opens, and there's a little step on the wheel, and then there's the strut of the wing which you hold on to you hold on to you shimmy out and then you kind of hang there like a bat for a moment and then you let go and as you fall away from the airplane there's a rip cord attached to the inside of the airplane so as you fall away it deploys but for your very first time you're now on radio trying to navigate your parachute down to the ground and which most places don't do anymore tandem which what most people do because there's no training in tandem right you show up and in about an hour they can strap you to somebody else and you go through you're it you're attached to an you're instructor. attached to an instructor an accelerated free fall or aff you go through a training class i still don't know what aff is it means you're basically a skydiver you're wearing your own parachute but you have two instructors what's accelerated about it the well, training part is accelerated in the old school you had to do 10 static lines before you could free fall right that's why they call it accelerated so it's 
accelerated, you're skipping one through nine. So I did it again on my second jump. I did AFF. How did jump number two go? You didn't blow out the other knee. <laughs> no, I didn't blow out the other knee. And I just decided at that point I wanted to keep going, and I started going every single weekend after that. So that was nineteen like ninety nine. And we skip all the way up to 2003 or 2004. And I now have about a thousand skydives. And I was getting into like becoming like a hot shot. I was working at the drop zone. I packed parachutes for a living. I was there every weekend and at the Cleveland Parachute Center, which became my home drop zone over in Cleveland. A awesome 400 acre farm, private airstrip, lots of big, huge bonfires. And we ran this big uh, skydiving festival for a week every year called the Good Time Boogie. And I was busy working all day. And they always say that like incidents don't just happen, right? There's like a bunch of things that like lead up to an accident or an incident happening. Yeah, it has to start somewhere, right? <laughs> right, but it's usually not one mistake. It's not one mistake you make. It's the two or three or four mm. mistakes. I was busy packing parachutes all day for this big boogie, right? Don't mess that up. Yeah, no, it took me. Kind right. of important. <laughs> That's what your reserve is for. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was busy packing all day, so I hadn't been jumping. So I wasn't familiar with like the day's conditions. Like that was a mistake. So the weather's one. important here. Weather's always important. You have to understand the winds and the winds change from the upper winds to the mid-level. So I was getting to that point of it wasn't just about the free fall anymore. It's about the canopy flying. People were doing all these maneuvers and flying really low and really fast 180s and 360s. What's canopy? So the old shoots are the ones like the mushroom looking things. Oh, it's called they, a square canopy. Okay, you, so canopy is different kind of parachute. Yeah. Right, not That's the more, old school. more maneuverable? Yeah, yeah, it's much more maneuverable. Yeah. Um, and they come in different like styles, right? So you can, you can fly a minivan kind of canopy or you can drive a Ferrari kind of canopy and i was trying to make that move from the minivan to the ferrari because mm. i was like oh i'm stepping it up i think i've dialed in all the performance i can, can get out of the canopy that i'm flying and i want to i want to start skimming across the ground and doing things like that so like they come in and like they do like a 180 degree turn at like a low altitude and they gain all this speed and it's about transferring the speed into lift so you get real close to the ground and rather than just coming down and landing you come in and then you just like swoop real fast and real low and you drag your feet but that takes this it's like base jumping there's this fine edge if you turn too low you're gonna hit the ground if you turn too high you're gonna you're gonna lose your speed before you you know lose altitude it's like the last load of the day before sunset and the beer bell goes off so i'm like and my buddy's like i got this canopy for sale this sweet vx69 super tiny highly elliptical canopy and he's selling it he's like oh it'd be a perfect fit for you you should go test jump it like yeah sweet i i got this it's close to sunset and your temperatures change which means your winds are changing so you're saying your first mistake was taking your first jump as the last yeah. Flight of the day. The second error was I was borrowing somebody else's canopy. People always say borrowed gear is like a number one problem. All right. So I'm I'm keeping score here and you've made two mistakes. I've so made far. two mistakes. So <laughs> and, you're, and you're about to jump out of an airplane. <laughs> like this is not a trampoline. So I jump and because I'm jumping a borrowed chute that I want to test, 
I decide to pull high, which that's a good thing that you typically want to do is pull high. It's a little high. safer. It's a little safer, which because I'm getting out high means I'm the last person out of the airplane. You stage how you exit an airplane based on the altitude that you're going to sure. pull your parachute. And, and the some lower other the altitude, the sooner you go. Right. Got or it. how you're falling out of the airplane. At this point, I'm the last jumper of the day because it's the last load of the day. And... and People on the ground are probably drunk by now, right? The beer light does not come on until the last load. Oh, you comes said beer down. bell earlier. Is that what you meant? Beer it's bell, like, okay, light, yeah. the shit's over. Time to like enjoy yeah. the boogie. Yeah, so I jump, and even though I deployed high, I'm like, oh, I'm, re- I'm a bit far out here. Like the drop, like the winds aren't bringing me back because the winds have died off at the end of the day. Basically, you're hoping that wind is going to bring you back. You're flying back and your ram air parachutes, unlike a round parachute, are going to fly you back. But if you take your jump run way too far out, then yeah, you're not going to have enough wind to bring you back. Typically, as an experienced skydiver, here's the mistake. What are we at? Three we're or four? We're on to three. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're on to three. three. <laughs> so when you realize that you're not going to make it back, what you should decide early on is pick a spot and land off. Most drop zones are located in, in farm country, and you find a field and you go, okay, I'm going to land in this field. It's making a decision early on and saying, this is where I'm going to land. I'm not going to make it back and pick a safe place and land there. Okay. So did you so you never made that choice. You were like, I'm getting to that drop uh, zone. Yeah, I mean, I had like, I think they call it in aviation and pilot training something about like the home syndrome or something. You're like, I can make it. I can do it. Like, it, it's going to be tight, but I can make it. Like, like, it's not that bad. Did you like start kicking? flapping your arms flapping your arms (laughs) (laughs) what you do is you get on your brakes and you and you get on the brakes of the parachute you slow down so you you have more time you slow down and so you can get maybe a little bit more lift slow your descent does she land does she land well does she land hard does she hardly land well we know she survived because she recorded the interview (laughs) true true we know that but but we don't know that she's like not missing her legs (laughs) exactly nobody knows that exactly the next story comes from our friend steve crozer steve's a kayaker very a very good kayaker he doesn't use a paddle when he kayaks though he uses his hands yes so what it's just another way of doing it what what could possibly go wrong Let's find out. Great day. It was cold. It was snowy. It was February, in fact. There's about 18 inches of snow on the ground all around. No, it was magnificent. We, we get to above Dimple, the first significant rapid after a very long flat water stretch. Ben brings out a bottle of moonshine. Now, alcohol was involved, but it may or may not have significantly contributed to, to the events of the day. But it was present. Someone made this at their still in, back in the holler. I for did, all we know i didn't ask him but okay um, did uh, it taste like it i mean we, yeah 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 okay. this, yeah this was like serious booze and so it's a big crowd and everyone gets a sip and then everyone peels out after one sip and we're paddling and there were just a few of us held back a little and we're drinking a few more rounds of the moonshine and then ben proceeds to drop the lid of the mason jar in the river and you and and the natural reaction is we have to finish it what other option is there 
Dimple is no problem when we head out and we get to Swimmers. Now, Swimmers is the friendliest surf wave you'll encounter. It's uh, almost river-wide, and it's called Swimmers because it's that sweet and easy that people swim through it. And I started surfing. And remind people, that how do you paddle? Oh, I'm, I'm a hand paddler. I don't use a paddle. I have plastic paddles attached to my hands. It gives me um, a much more natural aspect to it. Don't have a tool in my hand. I'm simply using instinct and swimming kind of behavior and paddling. I have more control but less power and speed. So I was surfing and having a damn good surf, I must say, and, and enjoying it thoroughly and, and doing flat spins and, and front surf, back surf, whatever I could. And I think I was in there a little longer than people liked. And Jeff Blood decided to join me, make a party wave out of it. I dropped my edge, which power flipped me. I have no idea how it occurred. But that power flip, it removed my shoulder from its socket. Which is one of the most common river injuries. Yes, and I'm susceptible already. I've, I've dislocated. I've, I already had rotator cuff surgery on that shoulder. You're upside down. You know you just injured yourself. It's obvious. I know, I know exactly what's going on. I know that my one shoulder's out. I'm assuming you can't roll it with a separated shoulder. I can't even try. It, it's, it's that painful. It's painful. You know, the pain is extreme, but my situation is much more extreme, and the, the pain gets pushed away because I'm in a survival situation. I have my hand paddles attached to my hands. In winter, I wear very thick gloves. Getting my hand paddles off is a little tricky. To get your spray skirt off. I need two hands to get my hand paddle off so that I can get my spray skirt off so that I can come out of my boat so that I could breathe air. And so you can live. Yes. Being winter and the thick gloves, the, the straps are a little more sunk in and a, it's a little more difficult to get them off. How would you get your hand paddle off in a typical situation when you had not separated your shoulder? I'd use my right hand, grab the left paddle, and then pull my left paddle out of the straps. But I can't grip with my right hand and I can't grip with my left because I, I can't pull. I'm, I'm stuck. And at that point, I knew I'm in big trouble. And my friends are basically laughing because it's quite funny. It's it's swimmers for crying out loud and people flip all the time. It's a totally benign place and you just finished a mason jar of moonshine. This is hysterical to them. It would be hysterical to you to, to watch it because it's, it feels benign. It is benign for the most part, usually. And then I'm floating upside down, and it's even more funny because now I'm not able to roll. The appearance is I can't roll, and Steve's going to swim. And how awesome is that? <laughs> they, can't wait to, they can't wait to clown you for it. Right, because below swimmers is nothing. There's a few small waves, and then there's a big pool. The consequences are extremely low if you swim over there, unless you can't swim, unless you're stuck in your boat. I did the only thing that I could do. I started kicking myself out of the boat. All right, so we've got three situations here. We've got Matt Zelesnik on his own in the back country in winter through the trees. Nobody knows where he Nobody is. Nobody knows where he is. Except we, for these two skiers. Well, only one knows where he is. They have an idea. The other has a rough idea. Neither of them see all that responsible they don't even know his last name that i don't even know if they know his first name <laughs> then we've got chrissy she's coming down fast right on a borrowed parachute and she's trying like hell to get to the drop zone and then we've got steve uh he's upside down it's february he's really cold his shoulder doesn't work he can't get those paddles off his hands and he can't breathe 
He's in dire straits. My question is, who's in the greatest danger here? That's a question for you, Brian. Chrissy has the most to lose. Yeah, Crozier's in a tight spot, but life or death, he's probably going to get out of the boat. Uh, and Matt, boy, that's that's a that's a that's a crapshoot there. If it doesn't get dark on him, he'll be okay, I think. I think as long as he skis down. Yeah, but he could ski below the resort. Like that's a that's possible. Ooh. And then he'd actually run out of snow because he also told us earlier in the interview, which we edited out that there was no snow at the very base of the mountain where the parking lot was. They took the first lift from like green April British Columbia. It could be days. I agree that Matt seems like he's in the best situation, but he's in a place that's really remote. And what if I told you that Steve's story is about to get worse? I eventually came out, I kicked myself out, I'm breathing, I'm the, I have a dislocated shoulder, I'm waiting, I've got my boat in one hand, I got to the shore and immediately started maneuvering it ways that I've been taught that we could not get the shoulder back in the joint. It was agonizing, I was screaming, I was literally screaming out loud from pain, but I knew that I had to endure it to get it back in, but it wouldn't go back in. So it came a point, probably half an hour of attempts. Oh, by the way, this was around probably three four in the afternoon we organized the plan although i i was pretty lucid and 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 participating very fully um we sent two people down to the takeout to get in their cars and call 911 somehow and the plan was for me to hike up to the trail there's a trail that goes along the lower yuck it's a steep climb but there's a foot and a half of snow so we just had to just blaze straight uphill surrounded by three or four guys not much they could do to help me well you need to use your hands to walk in that situation absolutely because it's total scrambling through a mountain laurel and snow right and snow and the thought was then that i would start walking but the snow was like crusty on the top and soft on the bottom you can't walk through on that. the trail about 12 inches deep no 20 30 steps into it i stopped i said this is point i i cannot do this you know i wasn't in agony when i it hurt like hell but i wasn't dying of agony there wasn't the problem but it's just non-stop uncomfortable and your mind goes through these games of saying if only i moved it this way it would be more comfortable or if i if i lay on my back it would be more comfortable or if I, the truth is it's not it's uncomfortable no matter what but i got it in my head that if my pfd came off i'd be more comfortable is this an over the head life jacket or something easy to take off yeah it's over the head that's that's crazy steve you have to put your arms up over your head to get it off yeah but but it's also warmth the getting it off part was stupid because you're just not going to be more comfortable but the insulation that it provides was my big mistake so you got it off right got it off time goes on and an hour i don't know how much time passes we'd start losing light and that's when i realized that a fire might be essential because then i started getting cold and, and then i started lamenting the pfd but i was didn't want to put it back on plus i had physical trauma and i had swam i i told i asked zach to start looking for firewood and he had matches a lighter on him you know safety gear is important so steve's out of his boat but he's not out of the woods literally now same question chrissy matt steve matt you know he could get hypothermic he could lose some fingers he's only 16 you know, Steve, at least Steve knows where he is. He knows he's two to three miles either way from, from the takeout or the put-in. We'll let this settle itself. 
go ahead and take a listen. First, Matt. Looking to myself, that ski patrol search and rescue class. I should have really paid a lot of attention. <laughs> so after five, ten minutes, I see this ridge, and I kind of pick up some speed, and lo and behold, you crest it, and there's this nice groomer on the other side of the ridge, and I was like, oh, thank God, I'm back in back in the resort area. Part of me maybe had no business out there. Part of me, the ignorance is bliss. Now, Chrissy. And I made it to the drop zone. You did? I, yeah, I was right, over so the drop zone. So that wasn't really mistake three. We're, I'm taking that off the list. No, it's a mistake because here's here's the issue. One, I didn't have time to test the canopy because now all I'm doing is driving back to the drop zone because I was adamant I was going to make it back to the drop zone. So I didn't give myself the altitude to do, do any of that because all I was doing was flying downwind in order to get back to the drop zone. And not used to the canopy that I went from minivan to Ferrari is that I'm like, okay, now I'm about 200 feet. I've made it back to the drop zone and I need to turn back into the wind now. You need to do a 180. Right, because I don't want to land downwind. Because as I learned on my very first skydive, I landed downwind on the tarmac. That shit hurts, and you blow out <laughs> your knees when you land downwind under a parachute. When you turn an elliptical parachute, you lose a lot more altitude in every turn. I was probably about just above treetop level, maybe 50 feet above treetop level, and I decided to do a turn. And what I did was basically dive my canopy right into the ground. I hit the ground probably going about 45 miles per hour at a 45 degree angle. This is the part that I remember very clearly as I remember the moment after making that turn and going, that was so stupid. Why did I just do that? And I knew it was going to hurt and I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know it was going to be that bad. I mean, I made the complete turn. So the canopy came around, but rather than me being upright, I was at about a 45 degree angle feet to head parachute above me. I hit at my pelvis. So my body kind of came around and I I was amazingly lucky I didn't break anything. I couldn't walk for about a month after this. Were you landing on grass? It was dirt kind of bounced up in the air and then came on to like my face. I still had enough speed that like I had a full face helmet on, but my face was on the ground like my chin, and I kept moving forward a good 10 feet, but my feet were in the air. I looked like a scorpion at this point. So there was a mark in the ground. From your chin. From my chin. You're almost like a plow. I'm like a plow. There's a literally like a, a mark in the ground <laughs> that's at least 10 feet long it's from my like, face. It's like when you play the wheelbarrow race at summer camp. And you, <laughs> yes! And you, like, and you like fall on your chin, and the guy pushing you is like the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> I always remembered it like this energy, like I hit a train. They cut my parachute off of me. They called an ambulance. I've seen this happen before. Most people break their femurs. This is, this is a common skydiving injury right at that point in your skydiving career. So they took me to the hospital. They did x-rays and MRIs, and they were like, well, somehow you don't have a single broken bone in your body. So there we are. Matt made it. He's out of the woods. Chrissy's on the ground. What about Steve? He's collecting firewood. It gets dark. He starts looking at building a fire, and and we saw the lights coming towards us. Now, the volunteer fire department in Ohio Pile has little golf cart type of things, a rhino type vehicles. I don't know what they are, ATVs, with trailers. Then no first aid. Say, come on, you're going to come. And I said, no, I'm not coming. What? Until I get my 
dry suit off of my head. Some nurse or someone <laughs> is going to come in with a pair of those, you know, those scissors those with a little flap and just go <laughs> zip. And this the heck with that steve this is awesome and i'm like you guys are gonna help me get out of this dry suit or there's a dead guy here i'm not coming until this dry (laughs) suit comes down over my chest zach come on let's do our thing the trickiest thing in kayaking is getting yourself out of your dry suit neck gasket zach and i struggled and we got it off so now my dry suit is down below my rib cage and now have no insulation on my upper body they put me in the front seat and out we go and it seemed like for hours we're driving in this freezing cold um it did take my mind off the shoulder because <laughs> i was quite cold and um, by the time we get to the hospital i suspect i have been dislocated for four to five hours five people muscled my shoulder back in then i woke up and my shoulder was back in place this was a saturday the next friday i had my surgery Thanks for listening to So There I Was. Maybe we've all learned some lessons here. If you or someone you know has a story for us of harrowing outdoor misadventure, send an email to stories at so there I was podcast.com. Don't spoil the end. Don't give us too much, though. We like to be surprised in the recording. Music for this podcast is produced by Lobo Loco. You can find... The music of Lobo Loco and thousands of other tracks at the Free Music Archive online. Until the next adventure, keep your shit together. <laughs> <laughs>